Hello everyone and welcome to Amateur Hour at Burley Fisher Books. This is perhaps the most lo-fi, I think would be a charitable way to describe it, um, episode of Burley Fisher's Isolation Station we've done thus far. Uh, we've ditched our sophisticated technical operation for just standing around the phone. Shouting into a phone, yeah. <laughs> it's fortunate there's no customers in at all today. So yeah, we can just absolutely. stand behind the desk. We're chuffed about it. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> stay away, stay away. Um, <laughs> Who have we got um, on today, Sam? So today uh, we're welcoming back uh, Big Bill Kerbeck, who will be Whee! talking to uh, who'll be talking to um, Vincent Vermins about his new book, The Jakarta Method, um, which is all about how the CIA have destabilised um, regimes throughout the world throughout the twentieth century. So no, he, no, I know they wouldn't do something like no, that, I would know. they? Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I find it hard to believe. The, the lovely, just trying to keep us safe. The cuddly CIA. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out that teddy bear's got claws. <laughs> Let me tell you. Um, but yeah, without further ado, we'll hand over um, straight to Bill and to Vincent. Vincent Bevins is a journalist who's uh, contributed to numerous international publications. He's here to discuss his new book, The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. The book takes the reader into the recent history of Indonesia and the Cold War era crisis that gave rise to the book's title. His book shines a light on one of the darkest and most enduring chapters of the Cold War, the brutal crackdown and, as he notes in the book, sometimes literal demonization of communists in the world's most populous Muslim nation. Some people may already be familiar with aspects of this time period as it has been the subject of films like The Act of Killing and The Year of Living Dangerously, which takes its title from a line from a speech by the dynamic leader of Indonesia at the time, Sukarno. While Indonesia and the movement Sukarno attempted to foster among former colonial countries to take their fate into their own hands provides the starting point for Vincent's book, in his lucid prose he examines the global implications of American resistance to the emergence of genuine independence among the nations that are home to the majority of the world's population. The terrifying narrative that he unfolds stretches from Jakarta to Brazil to Guatemala to Iran to Chile to Sudan and beyond, and the process of dehumanization and political mass murder for which Jakarta became a shorthand Vincent notes, is anything but a footnote in the history books. It is a burning injustice that informs the world we live in and a set of rhetorical strategies that are becoming increasingly familiar in the political discourse of Europe and the United States. On that auspicious note, we welcome Vincent Bevins to the isolation station. Hello everyone, welcome to an episode of the Burley Fisher Books Isolation Station podcast. My name is William Kerbeck. I'm attempting to fill in for Daniel Fuller this week, who is, I believe, is in the countryside, as it is described uh, popularly. I'm also here with Anthony Hurley, and today we'll be speaking to uh, Vincent Bevins about his book, The Jakarta Method, Washington's Anti-Communist Crusade and the Mass Murder Program that Shaped Our World. 
So one of the things that really distinguishes your book from others that I've read on this topic is that in addition to the rich geopolitical context and the historical facts, is it also really humanizes the story and the consequences of these geopolitical um, issues uh, and has you know, a rare facility in sort of drawing us into the lives of characters. Could you speak about some of the, the characters the reader meets in the book and how you encountered them and their stories? Yeah, of course. I mean, so this was the, the bulk of the work that I've done and it probably emerges from the fact that that's the way that I've done the bulk of my work in my life. I mean, for better or worse, I've always worked as a journalist in mainstream U.S. or U.K. publications, so the skills that I have, whether or not they're valuable, are to sort of meet people, interview them, and try to take that existing knowledge on a topic and package that into something that a regular person could read. So I try to come at this book um, in exactly that way. So when I decided, you know, that anti-communist violence is an important enough part of the history of the 20th century that it deserves or that it can be the main um, prism through which you view the entire Cold War, or even the entire 20th century. Um, I set about trying to meet people around the world that had been victims of that violence, or that could tell me what it was like to live through it, or to lose relatives or family, uh, relatives or friends or comrades to that violence. And just very luckily, because of my own professional history, I knew Spanish and Portuguese, and I knew people all around South America, so I could start there. And I learned Indonesian in the process of doing the book. And so I spent two years just popping back and forth between 12 countries, meeting the pe meeting all the people that might want to talk, finding out who didn't want to talk, and then eventually selecting the people whose stories jumped out and also jumped out in a way that was international. So so doing this like took a lot more work than just sort of would something that would be like to get the declassified files and be like, the United States is responsible for X. And... Um, Hopefully that made it slightly a better book, but it certainly was like that was what I spent like almost three years doing was was trying to get in that like legwork to make it feel real. Great, and and maybe maybe you could take us into one of the characters for uh, a little bit of background. I mean, obviously, we're you know it, it centers on some of the you know the, like uh, the it's the evolution of an idea in a way, and and some people's stories span that whole journey. I mean, perhaps uh, Benny Mignono, uh might be someone to would to sort of place the, to the force so that people can uh, kind of get a grasp of, of what the personalities like or who shapes some of these stories are. Yeah, I was really lucky to find people. Well, I think the story of the way that the West wages the Cold War on the Global South needs to be put in the context of the way that the West colonized African Asia over hundreds of years. So I thought it was really illuminating to find people like Benny and like Francisca who lived through Dutch colonialism saw Japanese imperialism take over their country, and then see the ways that a nascent anti-imperial or anti-colonial left viewed what the United States was doing as a continuation of that process. So Francesca, like I said, um, she's technically a princess, um, but through put that all aside um, to get involved in the anti-colonial movement, which in, in Indonesia at the time was identical to left-wing um, politics like no it was everyone was a socialist that was anti-dutch and everyone that was anti-dutch was a socialist and then her husband ended up becoming one of the most important journalists for the Indonesian language newspaper um, uh, overseen by the Communist Party and then she lived through the early years of Indonesian um, uh, uh, nationhood up through the tragedy of 1965, which took the lives of approximately one million people with the active assistance of the United States, and then through the long tail of that violence up to this day. And I mean, I, ta I spoke to her actually like three weeks ago. She's like watching the reverberations of the book. She's like, oh, you know, congratulations. 
she's like 95, like still trying to get the word out about what happened. She's telling me like, oh, you know, don't don't forget to tell people about what how Dutch colonialism set the stage for all of this. So I think Francesca is the person that ties most of the book together. But yeah, like I said, it was a lot of extra work to see people whose stories went across nations because she's now in Amsterdam. She started her country. Well, she started her life in the Netherlands technically and ended her life in the Netherlands technically. She only had a country for about 15 years because of um, what I think is proper to call Western imperialism. And on this topic of imperialism and the retreat of imperialism, one of the aspects of your book that I think you've dealt with in some other interviews, but I, I think it bears repeating here, is, is the notion of how you've, you've sought to reclaim this notion of what third world meant. And right. you know, obviously many people who now hear the term, they think of it as a, it's a kind of epithet, but of course Sukarno and many of the allies right. who have been part of the non-aligned movement, which is the core of what, you know, where, where this independent struggle came from, they, you know, they, they coined the term and they, or like, you know, they, they basically embraced the term and wanted to make that a, an ideological position. And maybe if you could just, if you could just unpack the term yeah, and yeah. why reclaiming it is such a, such a valuable thing at this moment. Yeah, as you rightly point out, the term third world has been degraded in the English language, largely because of the racism of the speakers of the English language. Um, but its origins are in an entirely optimistic and forward-looking and almost um, in, in deeply inspirational version of what could happen in a post-colonial world. And I find it really useful in like the most basic schematic way to restart the story of the 20th century, being like breaking out what's the first world, what's the second world, what's the, what's the third world, um, because those those you know those three entities interact in the Cold War and like realizing that the third world was the vast majority of humanity um, the people that were enslaved colonized and suppressed for hundreds of years by the West by Western Europe um, and to some extent the United States at the later years of, of overseas classic imperialism um, and to see that those people had a vision to get together and that they truly believed that the end of European imperialism would mean that they would take their rightful place on uh, alongside the first world uh, in the white um, you know northern Atlantic West and along the second world which was you know based out of Moscow find it that really allows you to reshift the narrative I think of the Cold War in a way which is much more respectful of the idea that all human beings are equal right because the idea that the Cold War was really between some white people in Washington and some white people in Moscow is you know, uh, it it occludes so much of the reality of life in the 20th century that I think it's kind of racist, right? I mean, I think the right way to look at the Cold War is not between the first and the second world, but a war that the first world waged upon the third world for attempting to assert its uh, a path to its future that was different than the path that the United States thought it should be taking. And the third world as a term was coined in the early 50s. Um, uh, by 1955, it was really a movement. It was not a category. It was like a project, right? Um, that came together probably most concretely under Sukarno and Nehru at the 1955 Bandung Conference, uh, bringing together about half of the world's peoples in this in this vision of like, you know, it wouldn't have been considered left at the time, but it, in in compared to in the in the in the like uh, from from 2020, it seems as a very left leaning pro socialist. Uh, anti-imperialist uh, project and the United States didn't like this one bit and it didn't like um, some of the developments that were that were taking place in the neutral or non-aligned countries and by the by the early years of the Eisenhower administration being neutral despite the best intentions of the third world movement to make it clear to Washington that they were they did not want to pick a fight with Washington they almost to pathetic extents 
um, tried to sort of genuflect to Washington and say, like, look, 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 we know you're the big boss in town now. We do not want to fight you. We want to be neutral in, in, in a way that we think is um, uh, that can fit into your vision of, of the 20th century. Despite all of that, uh, by 1953 or four, neutral countries were seen as the enemy and ripe for destruction if it, if it served the interests of the, the, the people calling the shots in Washington. And on the subject of some of those people calling the shots in Washington, one of the um, things that is, uh, you know, is interesting about it is because while a lot of the violence is carried out by local parties, militias, or generals, or whatever, you provide a good sense of the architecture behind the development of the Jakarta method, and it fits into a period of paranoia and militarism that characterized U.S. foreign policy and domestic policy to an extent, uh, as well as by, by means of the CIA and other other sort of associated organizations during the Cold War. I was wondering if perhaps you could speak about some of the rogues gallery of security and intelligence officials you identify in the book. I mean, there's yeah. notably Frank Wiz, Wisner, the yeah, Wiz, yeah. Uh, Stanley Gottlieb, uh, Lucien Pai, who's the founder of uh, what was known as Area Studies at the time, but became Development Studies, right. and of course the immortal Richard Helms, the yeah, CIA yeah. director in the late period of the um, Vietnam War. I was wondering if you could maybe just take us into some of those personalities and what they, you know, how they created this structure that was then exported. I mean, you, you know, Obviously, you go into some detail, but in the book, of course, but maybe yeah. a feel here. I think it's really important for um, people in the Anglophone West to like, remember about the, the beginning of the CIA is that it was like thrown together rather quickly after World War II. These were sort of um, blue blood, cosmopolitan liberals from the elite of uh, sort of the, edu the educated intelligence in the United States. So these were people that thought of themselves as kind of progressives. Um, they were often Anglophiles. Like a lot, of, they all went. To, a lot of them went to schools that were based upon Eton. They kind of had a, a weird. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they had a big, a weird sort of inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis, like upper class Englishmen, and vis-a-vis -vis MI6 for sure. And then they came onto the scene, but being really well funded, but also deeply American in like a naive way, where they thought they really, really, really sort of believed in what they were doing, and mm -hmm. in, in in a way that a lot of. Um, uh, European sort of imperial agents would have been more cynical about, and they um, they were given a task to like fight communism, right? And these people would all get together in Washington D.C. and they would get drunk every Sunday and discuss how they were going to do it. In the first years of the CIA, they tried repeatedly to break into the Eastern Bloc, into either the Soviet Union or countries that were actually controlled by the Red Army. They failed repeatedly, sending. Uh, people to their deaths over and over, weirdly continuing to send people into their deaths, even though they realized that um, operations had been infiltrated. But they had this big pile of money, and they had this weird uh, meritocratic sort of American go-get-em attitude that they had to succeed to their bosses. And it was in the early 50s that they turned to the third world and was like, well, maybe we could try to fight communism there. And this is where they were very, quote-unquote, successful in Iran. 1953 was the big success. And again, this was like the interaction between old-school European imperialism and the new... CIA was really important in Iran because it was uh, it was MI6 in the UK that were coming to Washington saying like hey help us do a coup in in Iran we can't quite pull it off our oil interests really important and then realizing that Americans were such sort of naive anti-communists the the British used that to sort of convince the Americans like well also in addition to the oil thing they you know could go to communism so like um, the like the beginning of of this organization that goes on to do really awful things very quickly, trying to, you know, uh, uh, poison Lumumba, the first, you know, leader of the Congo after decolonization, uh, kidnapping and and uh, performing mind control experiments on Americans 
were all these guys that were like the like the go get 'em blue blood Yale football team elite kind of of America, um, and I think this deeply informed the way that like they really believed that they had it was their destiny to get results and they were going to get results, and as things turned very very weird, they got they got positive reinforcement from above when things went well quote unquote well and when they fucked up like fucked up like destroyed entire countries there was no repercussions and so this this dynamic of having nothing bad happen to you when you fail but you get a little bit of positive reinforcement uh, from above when you quote unquote succeed I think explains a lot of the way the world is mapped out now in the early 21st century I mean the number of countries that have had their destiny shifted by these kind of schemes coming out of Washington um is really really high. It's I think I mean as I you know as I said in the book it like shaped our world. It totally re reconfigured the map of, of politics. I think certainly. And, and one of the other I think you know you're speaking a little bit about mythology of creation, mythology function. One of the myths that I think your book does a really good job of addressing is the myth that's grown up around John and Robert Kennedy, who oversaw this generation of aggressive policies, assassination policies before they themselves, of course, were assassinated. I mean, could you speak about the role of the Kennedys specifically during this period and how their myth has come to obscure the sort of less flattering aspects of their policy? I mean, is it fair to say that murder really became a U.S. policy in earnest during Kennedy's presidency, as opposed to even Eisenhower? Um, I, well, yeah, I think well, the, I think Lumumba Lumumba was eventually killed yeah. right before. So Lumumba, both Lumumba and the Bay of Pigs operation started as he takes off before he's actually the president. Mm-hmm. But he he inherits all of that, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the really interesting thing about JFK is that he was one of the very few um, major players in U.S. politics in the in the nineteen fifties that would sort of stand up in Congress and say, "Hey, I think the peoples of the developing or sort of the post colonial world have a right." To choose their own destiny like we can't confuse the desire to be independent with communism you know um to the point where he when he was elected sukarno as i said like the founding father of third world um left-wing nationalism and definitely the founding father of indonesia was happy to see john f kennedy win because he thought that he had an ally in the united states and again this is this is another trope that you see over and over that people in the third world don't get why america has become anti-colonial or sorry, has become, become a, 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 has stopped having sympathy for anti-colonial struggles. So John F. Kennedy takes over, Bay of Pigs happens, and I think he realizes very quickly, oh, I'm going to be accused of being weak on communism, just like everybody else. I'm going to have to deal with these CIA guys, even though I hate them, just like everybody else. And he immediately gets really energetically into the use of covert operations in Latin America and around the world to... Um, to engineer destiny as he sees fit. And then, like, you know, he's murdered in uh, 1968, is it? He killed, I mean, two weeks before that, he killed the leader of South Vietnam. So he ordered he ordered a coup against uh, Ziem in, in, in Saigon, at which led to his death. I mean, he didn't ask for that death to happen, but it was pretty clear that it might have happened, uh, that it could have happened. And, you know, so he, uh, by all accounts, he murdered another leader two weeks before he was murdered by... I, I don't know who. It's weird that we don't know, but I'm not going to... Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to get conspiratorial about it, but I do think it's weird that we don't know. Um, and he set in motion in Brazil, certainly, the the coup which re, reconfigurated South American politics. Now, how, the one very big point of contention, and I, and I don't really know which way to go on this, is would, have, would the extermination of one million um, Indonesian leftists in 1965, would that have happened if JFK was still president? I think it's possible that it might not have because LBJ had less time for 
Indonesia, he was more he was more annoyed by what was going on there, and he kind of let all the advi- you know the kind of deep state blob advisors take over Indonesia policy, and they pulled out um, the the ambassador that which I spent a lot of time introducing in the book Howard Jones. So it it is possible. So JFK. One final one thing I want to say is that JFK and LBJ definitely oversaw as much, if not more, imperial violence than someone like Nixon. Mm-hmm. But the, I think that the reason we know so much about what Nixon did, we know we have we can like read the transcripts of what he said about um, the destruction of Allende. The reason that's like the one period in in twentieth uh, uh, century foreign policy that we think is really bad is because he went down in, in flames. Right? Mm-hmm. It it was. It was nobody's. It was in no one's interest to protect his legacy. So, like the files got burst open, and everyone was very, very um, eager to expose all the terrible things Nixon had done. In the case of JFK, a young, charismatic Catholic president that is murdered on national television, it is not in the interest of the United States to expose all the ways that he was really bad. In the case of LBJ, probably the most. In, just for the British yeah. audience, that's Lyndon Baines Johnson. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 President Johnson, probably the most progressive. Um, Democrat, when it comes to domestic policy since FDR, it is not in the interests of, of the United States to go back and rip open all those files. So I try. I mean, I called the CIA when I was reporting this book. I tried to get them to tell me what happened and what they did in Indonesia in the early 60s because it's still classified and it's not out. Whereas like with someone like Nixon, we found out right away what it was. So I think being Democrat helps because the U.S. media is Democrat-leaning. Um and if you go out in the good graces of your party, it's way less likely that you're going to get intensely scrutinized. Okay, yeah, a very, very good point. Um, so just a, into one more question about the kind of mythological, the centrality of myth and myth-making to this process. One of the things that really struck me about the book is the way in which gender is often central to the violence and mythology that's created in this, so that's created the atmosphere of impunity around communism, or anti-communism it is, within the Jakarta method. Uh, like, a, there's a weird obsession with the signifiers of masculinity and emasculation. From the beginning, you document the fake porno that, uh, right. that Bing Crosby was going to make with Sicardo and they were going to show him without any hair and that was going to maybe somehow affect him right. or there's a picture they're, they're saying Castro show him without the beard and that right. will like destroy him and of course you know this this feeds into a you know also this cosmic dread of women and femininity right. and I was wondering if you could speak about this feature of the project you know the Jakarta method and and the anti-communist hysteria and you know what you feel its implications are for our current situation and, and how those have filtered through other aspects of the culture you know in your estimation but also from some of the stuff that that you've documented in the book. yeah and no, this is a really interesting dynamic because it goes back to something you asked earlier like these guys that founded the CIA um, I think that like America has been so normalized as like a, 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 a source of cultural production and like as a as like a way of life that we forget how weird sort of the history of the United States is which is why I try to reintroduce these CIA guys as like very much like white American Protestants from a post Puritan background like these are like Northeastern you know white Anglo-Saxon Protestants that have a very specific understanding of religion, very specific understanding of sexuality, and very little understanding of the world outside of America. It, they really like came from this settler colonial mindset where we escaped, you know, like with the stuff that I learned in school, we escaped England because we, there was enough freedom, we created the most free and like God, you know, most the, the society that was most in, most in alignment with God in the history of humanity. And so when these people tried to understand the countries like Indonesia, which is a Muslim-majority country, but which is much less less prudish about sexuality than the United States in many ways. Or Cuba, which they had this, like, insane idea about, like, machismo, but, like, in the most literal and stupid sense. 
they commit these like errors that are very funny, like making a porno or trying to get Picasso's beard to fall off. But the long-term consequences of this kind of gendered propaganda and gendered violence are very real in places like Indonesia. So um, in 1965, when the Indonesian uh, U.S.-backed, U.S.-trained, U.S.-armed military spread the intentional propaganda which was going to be used to justify the mass murder of the Indonesian left at the, at the time, the largest uh, communist party outside the Soviet Union China, for reasons which will are not very surprising, uh, they chose to pin it on the feminist movement. So with absolutely no evidence whatsoever, just because it seemed probably like it was going to work, they claimed that it was not just Indonesian communists that had committed, you know, vile acts of murder against Indonesian heroes. They, they took Garwani, the Indonesian women's movement, at the time one of the largest feminist organizations in the world, and they played on sort of the most almost cliche Freudian uh, tropes. They claimed that these Indonesian communist women had kidnapped powerful men in the middle of the night and performed a satanic sex ritual as they cut off their genitalia. And this is like, it's as insane as it sounds, this is like official truth to this day in the world's fourth largest country by population. And I had, I um, did another talk last week with Suchan Marching, who's a professor at SOAS and who's trying to write a, a book now about Gerwani. And one of the, the, they asked us if this still affects women in Indonesia to the same. She said, well, absolutely. This has, I mean, at the time it was, like I said, one of the most important feminist movements in the world. And this set them back 60 years, if not more, because Whoever it was that wrote that very effective anti-communist propaganda in Indonesia in 1965, and I wouldn't be surprised to find out that it wasn't just Indonesians, they played on this very effective and deep-seated insecurity that men have in, in patriarchal societies. And, um, you know, you got the same thing popping up again in, in the, in the uh, so-called dirty wars in South America that, were, that often took inspiration from Indonesia. You had the... You had the automatic association of homosexuality or, you know, women with short skirts or short hair being automatically communist uh, subversives, people getting thrown on um, grills to be burned alive, you know, men for having long hair, women for having short hair. The subversion of quote unquote traditional gender roles was seen as identical with communist revolution. And in Bolsonaro's Brazil, where I spent the last five months, this is very present once more. You know, Bolsonarismo, if it stands for anything, it's the, it's the, it's we, in the insistence that we must crush the left, and we must do so because the, the left wants to destroy the, the traditional Christian family. So, um, this kind of, and like, like I said, like we, the, the, the normalization of Americanness is so complete now that we kind of have a whole world that like kind of thinks almost in a weird Protestant, uh, uh, puritanical way, or at least we we're also. Um, conversant with what that means, that it seems normal, but it was very weird. It came from a very strange corner of settler colonial history in North America, and it's still, and its consequences are everywhere. No, I think, yeah, that's that's a good point uh, to sort of uh, speak about the way that culture and things become blurrier over time as, as we go forward. And one of the terms that, of course, perhaps seems obvious to deal with in the book, but is perhaps also one of the most interesting is the way that the term communist 
drifts from a specific uh, meaning of specific groups and specific beliefs in uh, you know as it as it moves through these former colonies and these different movements it just begins to like metastasize and start to mean anything it becomes a sort of floating signifier in the term in the terminology of, uh, sort of postmodern theory but it gets to the point where i believe you quote roberto duabison uh he's a militia leader i believe it was in el salvador if i'm not mistaken he says that cia per- trained death squad leader yeah needless to say yeah <laughs> um but he um he says something like a person could be a communist without personally understanding themselves to be a communist. That's right. what you quote him as saying, and that and that's obviously we've reached a very very different place from what you know from worried worrying about like Greek militias in the uh, in aftermath of the, uh, the, right. the of the occupation of uh, of Greece in the Second World War. So I was wondering if you could speak about the way the term morphed and basically to absorb almost anything that caused anxiety to these power systems and countries, and how that became really a key part of what the Jakarta Method meant. Yeah, exactly. So one thing I always have to say in interviews is. This, especially like to like more North American liberal audiences. I'm like, yeah, the Indonesian Communist Party was not communist in the sense that you probably think of now. They were not engaged in a violent attempt to overthrow anything. They were a moderate unarmed party participating in elections, which, you know, in the first half of the 20th century, to be like a Soviet aligned communist often meant that you were moderate and disciplined and sort of committed to building a bourgeois capitalist democracy and then later transitioning to socialism or whatever. In the 50s, especially um, with Korea uh, and the explosion of McCarthyism in the United States, communism just automatically meant the attempt to destroy America, right? Um, like the act of violent attempt to destroy the West. And like, yeah, in, in every, every communist, in some sense, does eventually hope that capitalism will be destroyed. But even under Stalin in his most like um, uh, mad and sort of unhinged moments, he, he never saw it as a good idea to take on the West directly. He realized that he was probably going to lose, that he would, he hoped the forces of history would, would be on his side in the long term. And someone like the, a party like the Indonesian Communist Party, they had no theory of armed revolution and they had no sense of what to do if someone attacked them because, and if, if they had, they probably wouldn't have all been killed, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was precisely because they were different than our understanding of what communism is that it was so easy to, um, to annihilate them. And then, so yeah, it becomes to, and then once you get the establishment of these dictatorships, that you get the fanatical search for anything that can be coded as subversive so that you can repress anything if you want to. So like it gets really insane extremes in Indonesia, like under Suharto, like sickles were banned from certain agricultural um, sites, like because it's half of the hammer and sickle, so you can't use a sickle. Chinese characters were banned. Um, in Argentina, the the most murderous of the South American anti-communist dictatorships, um, the uh, Videla uh, lumped in Jews, gays, and psychoanalysis with communism. It was because it was all equally a threat to what he saw as true civilization. So if it was subversive to what he believed the true nation, the true mission of Argentina was, then it was communist, right? It just comes to mean malevolence. It comes to mean subversion. The other danger. And really, it's that which I am allowed to crush if I want to. And this is why I claim quickly in the book that sort of the quote-unquote developing world um, got so screwed up by having anti-communism as a, as a, as a defining um, ideology. Because even in the liberal um, philosophy of how cap, you know, pluralist capitalist democracy is supposed to work, you're not. You're supposed to have the possibility of, of of reaction from below. You're supposed to have the possibility that if the right wing doesn't do very well, 
the voters can vote for the left. You're supposed to have the possibility that if labor relations get really screwed up, that unions can kind of fight back. You know, in countries in, in the most advanced and I think successful societies in history, you know, Italy and France, you had the left that was always there that could play this back and forth role. Whereas in a country like Brazil or Indonesia, anything that the ruling class saw as a threat, in their, even if they were wrong about whether or not it was a threat to them, they could immediately crush by claiming it was communist. Whereas in Italy, I mean, of course, the CIA was very active in Italy and France to make sure that the communists didn't get too powerful. But you had this possibility that the unions or voters could impose costs upon the Social Democrats or the center-right party or the far-right party. And in huge swathes of the world, you have this ideology which allows the ruling class to crush anything that is against its short-term interest. And like, not a single one of those countries has done well. Not a single country propelled by this kind of overarching ideology has caught up with the first world at all in the way that the initial proponents of the third world movement really believed that they would. Mm-hmm. And um, on that note, this uh, you know, the way that the, the, the deep involvement, the le- level of the depth of involvement was something that also struck me about the book. Um, and of course, one of the features that I took special notice of uh, as, a, as someone who was born in Kansas was the narrative that you, uh, you, you you include about Benny Widjona, who comes to Kansas and with uh, some to be trained, basically. The, he goes to the university and he gets trained. And they find soldiers who are working at Fort Leavenworth, uh, and it, you know he, he connects with them, and he sort of makes a sort of uh, I don't know, like it basically becomes this moment of like recognition of uh, you know people who are st- you know, studying abroad but you know getting a kind of an American experience. And the significant significance of this uh, sort of like caught me because it's like obviously it's personal in some ways but you think of all the dictators uh, who one might think of throughout the later part of the 20th century who had some specific or direct connection in terms of education within the United States itself and sometimes that involves Leavenworth which is now more of a it's a pillar of the carceral state there's a federal prison there for people who don't know but um, but uh, also at the School of the Americas in Fort Benning Georgia it's this uh, basically a place where a lot of Latin American and Central American um, military uh, military rulers and leaders key people were involved were trained as and i would just say that the this place school of the Americas is now called the western hemispheric institute for security and cooperation yeah. so it's changed its name and of yeah. course fort benning is also named after a confederate general right. henry benning and its name is being under reviewed but uh you know there are also interesting resonances there but i was wondering if you could speak about the way that the actual you know the, the movement of uh, you know the, the way that people coming to uh, coming from places where the jakarta method has been implemented were actually physically in the united states you know lived in a society yeah. and experienced it and then went back I, I was wondering if you could just speak a little bit about some of the things that you discovered about that or some of the things that you felt were interesting about that when you were putting the book together yeah it's um it's this it's this weird uh overlap of things that one side can see is totally benevolent and then the other side can see is truly demonic right because i am sure that the people both the military officers that were brought to um kansas and the uh, academics that were trained in the United States in the same period. I'm sure that the Americans overseeing that program saw it as like, no, we're treating, we're like showing them like the American way, like why, you know, it's great to have a liberal capitalist democracy or whatever. Um, but Benny Widjona, another one of the, the heroes of the book, who he's in a Chinese Indonesian, which means he's always experienced uh, Indonesian politics in some way um, aggressive towards him because there's periodic anti-racist violence in Indonesian politics to this day. He's in, in Kansas studying economics and he like starts hanging out with the Indonesian military that is being trained uh, at Leavenworth and this is right in the wake of the actual CIA bombing campaign that was that was an attempt to destroy Indonesia for being too left-leaning and that failed 
And he, looking back on this, I mean, uh, very sadly, he passed away last year, actually, after we finished the interviews for the for the book. Looking back on, like, sort of in a world historical, concrete sense, what really they were learning, these these Indonesian um, soldiers in, in, in the U.S., was how to be fervent anti-communists. How they were being, being inculcated and being paid often very well and, you know, sort of wined and dined so that we, they would accept this idea that communism was the enemy and um, must be crushed at all costs. And the people that were trained in Kansas were the people that oversaw the the beginning of the mass murder in, in Indonesia. Um, and the first dictator in Brazil was someone that had trained there, uh, had very good uh, uh, relationship with um, sort of new officials in the US government. And like, I'm, they, they go back and then they have this sort of carte blanche to do whatever they want as long as they turn around and tell their American friends we're fighting communism, right? And I don't think that they're being cynical about that. I think you sort of develop sort of uh, unconscious censors to be like, oh, well, my incentives are always to claim that there's more communists because the more I do that, the more aid they throw at me, the less they ask me about corruption, um, the more I'm a, a, a friend of the free world or whatever. But it, it's like, yeah, they, it was important for them to spend time in the United States and get a sense of like, oh, this is what these people really deep down believe in. Because the point I try to make in the book is that anti-communism as a sort of fanatical and violent ideology is not new to Latin America. When U.S. advisors get start hanging out in, I mean, they've, we've always been in every part of Latin America, when they start really getting having an active interest in South America and Central America, after World War II ends, they find an anti-communist culture which is just as vibrant and as robust as in the United States. And I think this has to do with a shared hip history of settler colonialism and fear of you know revolution from below, fear fear, fear of black and brown uh, rebellion and, and black and brown freedom. Whereas the Indonesian population in 1950-52 had no reason to believe that communism was worse than capitalism or colonialism or any other ideology. But it was through this period in the U.S. where they realized, like, no, 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 the new superpower really, really hates this thing. They'll give you a plausible enough explanation why you should hate it, too, and they'll make it very clear to you that this is where material support comes from. And, yeah, I think it's really important to that dynamic that you mentioned at the very beginning, that the the, the eventual murder of, of millions of innocent civilians around the world um, for anti-communist purposes or justified by anti-communism is not usually done. With an American like pulling the trigger or like stabbing the person, stabbing the, the 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 prisoner and throwing him into the river, it's usually done by the Indonesian military. That understands very clearly that they will they will get away with this if they do it. They will be praised. They'll get more aid. Um, it is sort of it's it's at, it's when an, an empire is at its weakest point that it has to do all the dirty work itself, right? When everything is working really well, you have allies and and uh, and friends around the world that do the dirty work for you. So I think one of one of the other things I'd really like to do is give the readers, uh, sorry, to give the listeners a sense of what some of your writing is like in the book, and uh, and, to, and to sort of bundle that into a question. So there's one passage that really struck me uh, in the book, and uh, it's towards the end, and I, I'll just read it out, and then maybe uh, and then maybe you can respond a little bit. And you say, when talking to those who had really been leftist, I would always say, think back to 1963, 1964. In those years, what world did you believe that you were building? What did you believe the world would be like in the 21st century? Then I'd ask, is that the world you live in now? Often their eyes would light up 
with when answering the first part. They knew the answer. They were building a strong, independent nation. They were in the process of standing up as equals with the imperial countries. Socialism wasn't coming right away, but it was coming, and they would create a world without exploitation or systemic injustice. The answer to the second question was so obvious that it felt cruel to even ask. It might have been one thing if their government had committed horrible atrocities, but recognized the mistake and built a just, powerful society. This did not happen. They were living out their last years in a messy, poor, crony capitalist country, and they were told almost every single day it was a crime for them to want to something different. If we read Sukarno's opening speech at Bandung, if we look at the left-leaning publications across the world from 1955 to 1965, if we read Afro-Asian journalists, the spirit of Bandung and pro-Third World magazine that uh, French Francisca translated, or democratic socialist publications in Brazil and Chile, we can ask, were they crazy? Were their expectations wildly unrealistic? Or could things have been different? And so I have to put that question to you, uh, Vincent. Uh, were they crazy? Were their expectations wildly unrealistic? Could things have been different? Yeah, I think I'm, I kind of give it away. I'm, I'm sort of, I, I lead, I lead, I think, where I'm, I'm, I'm I, where I stand on that is that um, I think that the answer that all of those people gave me is one that I think I find it at the very least plausible, if not worth remembering very clearly, that um, it was not inevitable that the uh, the United States and a very specific version of capitalism took take shape. There was many ways for globalization to happen. There's many ways for globalization to shift or to to unhappen or happen again. Um, uh, that doesn't mean it's easy to, or automatic. Um, but I, I do think that one thing that one thing that I think is important to understand about this kind of violence is that people don't do it willy-nilly, right? Like it's very hard to kill a lot of people. Humans don't like killing a lot of other people. Uh, it takes logistical, um, mechanical, uh, 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 and, and, and brute force to do this. Usually the, the cases that I discuss are not some dictator going going off and, and, and killing out of revenge. It's because it was necessary to construct the specific kind of the specific kind of repressive regime that they were that they successfully constructed. Um, and so if we're dealing with a world that is so a, a, a constellation of regimes that is so repressive that it requires mass murder, to set them up, I think it's pretty clear that's not the only way we 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 could organize things. I think maintaining that kind of a system requires the application of huge amounts of force, um, and I'm hopeful that uh, uh, that 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 it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, I, I think that I think it didn't have to be this way, uh, and it doesn't. No. Great, and um, and then just uh, in terms of, I mean, the book is out now, and it, you know, so you're doing work around that. But you work as a journalist as well, and I was wondering, are there any projects that you're currently working on or developing uh, that you'd like you'd like to know you'd like people to know about, or or research projects that you'd like to uh, perhaps find, you know, see, to see if anyone has any any inroads into? Um, no, yeah. So I I would like to write a second book. I'm trying to figure out that now. Um, I can't say too much because it's not. I'm not sure if or how it'll happen. But I would like to write a second book that deals with more recent history, based on my experiences in Brazil, largely the last ten years. Um, I'm here back in London after being stuck in Brazil for five months. I'm like, for the moment, I'm sort of corresponding for acting as correspondent for New York Magazine covering EU and UK politics in the face of coronavirus. But um, uh, yeah, I, I like I liked writing a book, and I think that like as short 
shorter form journalism becomes kind of degraded because we don't have enough resources and people don't really read. Uh, even like people, I feel like sometimes people will pay more attention to a 200 page book than they will to an 800 word article because an 800 word article is on your phone. So you're already like leaving. But if you like sit down with a book for a few days, you may actually have a way to connect with a reader. So, um, yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to get another book if someone will let me do it. Great. Well, on the subject of books, and of course, this is a book show for the mm-hmm. books. Um, I was wondering, are there other books about this topic or books around this topic that you'd recommend for other people to uh, to read, or maybe to, to, to see if they can find a you know a copy of themselves to you know sort of give it fill in some of the areas that you you, you maybe don't touch on in the book or that you that informed your own research. Yeah. So I, I um for like the big uh the big narrative sweep of the 20th century into which I fit my particular story. I relied a lot upon Odd Arn Westad, uh, W-E-S-T-A-D, for his book, The Global, and his work on the Cold War. He kind of like, in a very painstaking and and academic way, establishes the way that the Cold War is more about um, post-colonial movements than it was about Moscow and uh, Washington. But Jay Prashad's uh, Darker Nations, uh, history of the third world, or I think the people of the history of the third world, very similar uh, in, in like providing the big background context. But then if you get like really into the, the, the you want to get really into the nitty gritty of 1965 in Indonesia, I suggest Bradley Simpson's books, book Economists with Guns, which is the like the book that actually establishes the baseline truth of US um, involvement in, in the mass murder. And then John Roos's books also, which are uh, another academic looking really carefully at the actual murder itself um yeah yeah and uh i mean there's a whole and then like everything that's in the in the in the footnotes basically i I try to lay out like lots of different paths that people get more interested because it's it is a pretty like entry level or it can't mean i've been gratified to hear the experts like it too but i started try to structure it as something that kind of anybody can read and then you could find a follow-up path elsewhere if you wanted to great well thank you very much for your time and for a a great book vincent uh, a must read i think Hey, thanks thanks so much for having me and for and for yeah, thanks thanks to anyone that, that, that finds the time to read it. I've been really surprised to hear that, that I think the people have actually read it, so I'm really really grateful for that. Okay, thanks so much to Bill and Vincent. All of a sudden, I feel massively depressed, um, but I guess that's the world we're living in today. Yeah, 2020 uh, and 20th century conspiring together to um, really make us feel everybody. really uplifted. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, and then in, in some kind of more positive news, I wanted to talk a bit about uh, the subscription we've launched this month to get back to commerce. Uh, <laughs> so we launched, um, well, it was actually in September, but it um, continues every month from now on, uh, a subscription uh, for indie fiction. So please check out the website for that. Uh, you'll get an indie read handpicked by our expert <laughs> booksellers every month. They'll either be signed or they'll come with some extra um, special bumps. So yeah, there's, there's going to be some great titles coming up. Yeah, so that's all That's all I've got to say really uh, for, for this week. Um, but thanks again, once again to Vincent and to... Yeah, yeah, and we've got signed copies of Vincent's book, of course. So Drop yeah. them down. Or... If you want to find more, out more about the nefarious ways <laughs> the CIA, it's a really, a really fascinating read. So come on down. Big up. See you later, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.